So as Martin Luther King has said, it is our moral obligation responsibility to disobey unjust laws. This is the King moment. Where are you? You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association Oklahoma. I'm Matt Gleason. On today's episode, we're going to give you highlights from day two of the Zero Mental Health Symposium keynote sessions featuring Dr. Chan Hellman and Dr. Carl Hart. First up, let's hear from Dr. Chan Hellman. Dr. Hellman is a professor in the Annan Henry Zero School of Social Work and founding director of the Hope Research Center. He defines hope as the belief that the future will be better and you have the power to make it so. His Zero Mental Health Symposium keynote explored the science and power of hope. We'll actually begin towards the end of Dr. Hellman's presentation when he asked a very thought-provoking question. What's the opposite of hope? Here's Dr. Hellman. So I always ask this question uh, at every uh, presentation that I give. What's the opposite of hope? Despair. Despair is usually the, the comment that I get. Now, I would, I would argue that I'm a very nurturing professor at the University of Oklahoma. And so what I would tell you is that uh, you're wrong. <clears throat> the opposite of hope is apathy. It's apathy. And hopelessness is the idea that the outcome has already been decided and there's nothing I can do to change it. Imagine a middle school child who's not willing to study and is apathetic towards uh, an algebra exam. And you would say, well, if you would just study, if you would get a tutor, if you would do all these things, but in that child's mind, it doesn't matter. No matter what I do, I'm gonna fail. So why try, right? Now, despair is still part of hope. Despair is the idea that I still desire the goal my pathways are blocked. So what I'd like for you to think about is, what does desperation look like? Where have you seen desperation in the work that you do? And several months ago, I was working with CASA, and I asked that question, where have you seen desperation? And the response immediately from one of the advocates was, when parents abduct a child, that's desperation. And as we were having the conversation, the idea was the parents desire the goal of reunification. That's great. Great goal, we can all agree with that. The pathway that the parents had available to them was the abduction of a child. And they were motivated to do that. That, by the way, is hopeful behavior. Right? So if my goal is to get money for the weekend, and after I speak, I run out to the parking lot and look for cars to break into as a pathway, and I'm motivated to do that. I'm a hopeful person. And so we have to remember that hope is not always about positive aspects. Some people have, um, have as access to pathways that are dysfunctional, and our program services are helping to change and, and provide new pathways uh, to goal attainment. Um, the state of Washington um, is administering the Children's Hope Scale to all 8th, 10th, and 12th grade students uh, in the state of Washington. And we have about uh, data on about 40,000 uh, students. And what we've learned with things like depression, for instance, is that children with low or no hope have significantly higher r rates of depression 
than higher hope children. If we look at suicide, suicide ideation, similar results. No or low hope children report significantly higher rates of suicidal ideation uh, compared to high hope children. But here's the, here's the power of hope. We know how to do this process. We know how to nurture hope. And the idea starts with goal setting and identifying desirable goals and then moving from those desirable goals to beginning to explore potential pathways, including the barriers that people will likely experience. And those processes tend to elevate uh, willpower ever so slightly so that we can begin to go down that journey of nurturing hope. By the way, you have to get willpower elevated first before you can do much work with pathways. You have to pay attention to the willpower piece. So as an example of that, um, our research center at OU Tulsa, now by the way referred to as the Hope Research Center, um, we get to do the national research on Camp Hope America. It's now in 20 states uh, across the US. Uh, Ireland is uh, implementing a Camp Hope as is some uh, uh, sites in Europe. But Camp Hope is a program for children exposed to domestic violence. We have one in Tulsa through our Family Safety Center. Um, this is a one-week camp. It is not a therapeutic camp. It is a uh, challenge-by-choice camp in which the theory of hope is integrated throughout the curriculum of a day. In fact, the children's cabin, the small group of kids in a cabin, is referred to as a hope circle. And every day the children wake up, they set a goal and begin the pathway pursuits. With these children, about 2,000 children across the United States, um, again, these are, these are high trauma kids. This is a subsample of their A scores. This is the group that had the average A score of a 4.4. By the way, what does a rage-filled youth become? a rage-filled adult who has a higher potential for criminality, a higher potential for victimization, a higher potential for substance use and abuse and risk behaviors. And so we were interested in can we, can we mitigate the effects of trauma uh, in youth? And you probably can't see these in the back, I apologize, but again, about 80% of these kids have witnessed domestic violence, about half have a parent uh, in prison, so these are pretty high trauma exposed uh, kids. We measure hope 30 days before camp. We measure their hope on the last day of camp before they go uh, back home. And then we measure hope on a 30-day follow-up. And here's the good news, is that we can move the needle on hope. Those are significant increases in a child's hope. Now. That in and of itself is exciting and interesting, but notice the change from pre-test to post-test. That's a two-point change in those scores. And the research is very clear that a two-point change in a child's hope is a letter grade in the classroom. It will predict the difference between a D and a C uh, in the classroom. So one of the things that I'm really excited about is that we have begun a new program uh, with Enid Public Schools. Um, and this is a three-year pilot program uh, where we are focused on building 
trauma-informed and hope-centered schools, and we're working on toolkits uh, for principals, for counselors, for teachers, and every school has identified four what we refer to as hope navigators. The hope navigators will get a deep dive training on hope, and then they will be the, each school's local experts um, working with the teachers, counselors, and principals uh, to initiate hope-based uh, programming um, at, at all levels. One aspect about thinking about our organizations, if, if we know that hope is good for an individual, what is it like for a group? What would it be like for a community to be collectively hopeful? What things could be achieved if our community could begin to focus on hope? Two years ago, two years ago we uh, did a city-wide study. We got about 1,000 people to respond uh, here in Tulsa to a hope assessment and a collective hope assessment. And then we were able to connect that data with the public health data here in Tulsa County. And we found two significant um, uh, indicators. First of all is that hope scores for individuals were predictive of life expectancy rates from public health. That is, higher hope people live longer. The second thing that I thought was exciting is that collective hope should promote collective action. It should promote collective action. And so we were able to connect that data at the precinct level, or at our, I'm sorry, at our counselor district level. And what we found is that individual hope scores were predictive of voter turnout in every district. And so that's, those are two new areas that we're starting to explore with hope is what does it look like in an organization and what does it look like in a community? What is hope-informed leadership and what role does that have on staff's burnout and turnover? And in fact, one of the things that we just found in a national study with child abuse pediatricians is that in the presence of hope, uh, secondary traumatic stress and burnout completely disappeared. That hope was a buffer to this compassion fatigue burnout framework. What is the impact of a leader's hope on staff's capacity to perform their jobs? Those are some of the questions that we're starting uh, to answer now. And the exciting thing is that we know how to do this. We know how to nurture hope. The science of hope is good. The process is not that complicated. It's goals, pathway, and willpower. And that's the exciting part. Okay, now we're gonna go to the Q&A section of Dr. Hellman's presentation because he revealed something that few people, even our CEO, Mike Bros, who hosted the Zero Mental Health Symposium, didn't know about Chan. Get ready for this. Here's Mike Bros and Dr. Hellman. Totally transparency here, Chan. We've known each other quite a while now. When I first heard about your work, I, you know, again, I'm a person that's set in church a lot. I'm a graduate of Oral Roberts University and faith, hope, and love. I thought about that a lot. Love got in the finals. Faith and hope didn't. Hope I always just ignored. I've talked about faith, but then when you came along and I thought, eh, you know, is this the, is this, how has it been for you to grow, the, I mean, the early in your research, the reaction you got, and then the growth of where it is now? What that, what's that journey been like for you? Uh, pretty overwhelming. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I'm, a, 
uh, again, I, I'm a quantitative psychologist. I'm an introvert. Um, <laughs> Um, but I will tell you that uh, I think one of the things that's been powerful me, for me is to be able to work with organizations and groups and to, to see the power of this language of hope and, you know, really getting people to see that I'm, I'm not asking you to do something new. I'm asking you to consider this as a description of what you already do. Yeah. And we've been so focused on what's wrong with you and reducing what's wrong with you that I think it's time to pay an equal amount of attention to what's right with you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've, I've really seen it again in my clinical practice where I'm thinking clinically where is this person with their sense of hope mm -hmm. for the future? And boy, I get really concerned when uh, despair and lack of hope, and when I see that, I begin to think, and you, like you said earlier, I caught that, sometimes we have to lend hope and help that person in, until they can begin to generate that willpower. Is that kind of the Absolutely. clinical process? Yeah, um, you know, for me, the, kind of the overarching term is that hope is a social gift. Hope is not something that happens in isolation. It happens in relationship. And when people are in despair and apathy, I think those are special times and opportunities for people to lean into them. My own story, being homeless uh, throughout high school, uh, off and on, and uh, some pretty significant adversities, you know, and it was, a, it was a teacher, it was a small community, but that person who shared with me that I mattered um, and, uh, you know, special place in, in my heart for that teacher. You know, it, uh, it, he's the reason I, I didn't pull the trigger when I, uh, was in that place. Um, and, uh, just as an FYI, a couple months ago, I gave this presentation in Ponca city and I'm getting stuff ready. Somebody comes and stands beside me and I look up and it's that teacher. Wow. Uh, he, had, he had found me and that was, that was pretty special. That's pretty special. Yeah. 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 And, and that's who he is. That's who he is. So did you see why I wanted you to listen to that last Q&A section? I mean, goodness, many of us who know Dr. Chan Hellman, we didn't know that. And I've talked to some of his top students. I've talked to other mental health professionals, and they had no idea. So I want to get Dr. Chan Hellman actually on a future podcast and talk to him more about that. So definitely look forward to that. Okay, next up is Dr. Carl Hart. If you didn't get a chance to listen to our full-length interview with Dr. Carl Hart, it's episode 19 of the Mental Health Download, and it's definitely one you don't want to miss. So Dr. Hart is a Columbia University professor acclaimed for his research on substance use, and his Zero Mental Health Symposium keynote actually explored how society is constantly misled about drug use and addiction. We'll pick up towards the end of Dr. Hart's presentation and just to note, um, at one point, he showed our audience police footage of a horrible tragedy here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. On September 16th, 2016, Terrence Crutcher was shot and killed by police officer Betty Jo Shelby here in Tulsa. He was unarmed during the encounter in which he was standing near his vehicle in the middle of a street. The shooting led to protests here in Tulsa. Then on May 17, 2017, a jury found her not guilty of first-degree manslaughter. Here's Dr. Hart. So how do politicians use these drug issues to scapegoat certain communities and groups? This is the former governor of Maine, Paula Page, talking about 
people who deal heroin. In this moment in our history, we are compassionate, or at least we say, we're compassionate towards people who are using heroin, but we are going after the dealers. We are portraying the users as poor white folks, and of course the dealers are still those people of color, and Paul LePage says it best. Governor LePage was talking about out-of-state drug dealers coming to Maine in response to a question. It's a topic he discusses at a lot of town hall forums. Here's what he said last night. The traffickers, these are people that take drugs. These are guys that are named D-Money, Smoothie, Shifty, uh, these type of guys that come from Connecticut, New York. They come up here, they sell their heroin, then they go back home. Incidentally, half the time they impregnate a young white girl before they leave, which is a real sad thing because then we have another issue that we've got to deal with down the road. Please don't be shocked. This is how we've been doing drug policy in our country since our inception uh, and since we've been going after people. It's just that Paula Page was stupid enough to actually say it. So, but we've been doing this. That's why our jails look like they do. Now, continuing the scapegoating of drugs for the bad behaviors of people, for example, these are just a few people who were killed by law enforcement or a proxy for cannabis. Trayvon Martin, Ramarley Graham, Mike Brown, Sandra Bland, Philando Castile, these are just a few for cannabis, the smell of cannabis. And then we also have this issue of post hoc justification. When we find out that somebody's been using a drug, we say, oh, they were on PCP. You guys remember? Betty Joe, where are you at? This happened here. Well, he's got his hands up there for her now. This guy's still walking. They're following commands. Not for Taser, I think. That's got a feeling that's about to happen. That looks like a bad dude, too, to be honest. I'm going to stop that. But you all know what happened there. Terrence Crutcher was shot. And then afterwards, the post hoc justification was that he was on PCP. And PCP, the reports were saying how it makes people aggressive, combative, and all of this sort of things. Not true. But that's the narrative that's been going on in our country. You remember Rodney King. They said that they beat Rodney King that way because they thought he was on PCP. Of course, he wasn't, but that's what they said. You guys might remember Laquan McDonald in Chicago, the kid who was shot 16 times. They also said he was on PCP. So drugs are used in these ways to justify bad behaviors by people in authority. And people, this is, this is a rare, it's rare that people behave, misbehave on drugs like that in the way that it's been described. Trust me, I've given thousands of doses of these drugs to people in the lab and observed these sorts of things. And I have experienced myself uh, with drugs. And this, that this is these myths that, that continue to go on, they go on for a reason. But not only in the US, uh, a week ago, I came back from uh, Brazil. I was in Brazil for a month or two completing my book where I spent a lot of time in Brazil, in Brazil, in Rio, 
They kill five black men every day in Rio. Five black men every day. And this police vehicle says on it in English, it says, crack, we can win. We have exported our war on drugs and war on crack to places all around the globe. Rio, they're talking about New Jack Rio. You all might remember New Jack City in the United States. Awful film that perpetuated all those awful myths. Now it's all around the world. I was in Bangkok recently because with methamphetamine, they were giving people 50 years for having 35 milligrams of methamphetamine. By the way, methamphetamine is an FDA-approved medication in this country that can be used in children up to 60 milligrams per day. I met women in prison in Thailand who got caught with 25 milligrams, 35 milligrams, and they are spending 25, 30 years in prison. We exported this stuff. You guys might know the president of the Philippines, Duterte, he's killed thousands of people, drug users, because he said that if you're taking methamphetamine, they call it shabu, it shrinks the user's brain in a year. And he got this misinterpretation from studies done by people like Nora Bokal. So I went to the Philippines to try to like help clear up these myths, try to bring some reason. And I gave, I gave a series of talks. And before the end of my time there, this appeared in their major newspaper. This was a cartoon of me making fun of me. And I got death threats on my social media. This is me saying that methamphetamine does not shrink the brain of people. And the president himself had a, president, uh, had a press conference where he called me a black son of a bitch and so forth. This is in the Philippines. All around the world, we have misled or exported our misinformation about drugs. And we've given an opportunity to awful people to misbehave, awful leaders to misbehave. So, as a result of my journey, I am changed. I am a changed person. All of this has changed me. Changed me to the point where I am a proponent of legalizing or a proponent of legally regulating drugs. It would be consistent with our liberally asserting Declaration of Independence. You should read it. The Declaration of Independence says in the first sentence, that we all have the guaranteed rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And in the second sentence, it says that government should be created only to protect those rights. The problem is people don't notice. They don't read the Declaration of Independence. They don't know the American history. So the new book, Drug Use for Grown-Ups, tries to remind people who we are and how the country was started. Now, if we did implement regulatory schemes that permitted adult use, we could assure, ensure quality control of substances. We could generate more jobs, tax these sorts of things, and we could 
benefit from the tax revenue. It would also be consistent with freedom. Some states have done this with marijuana. We now have 11 states that have legalized marijuana and is taxing marijuana and creating jobs with marijuana. The entire country of Canada has done this. Uruguay has done this. Of course, if you do these kind of things, we have to do a better job of educating people about drugs and dispelling many of the myths that exist. Programs like D.A.R.E. is not drug education. So I'm going to wrap up now. I'm going to wrap up and just say how we get there. How do we get there? We get there by requiring people to have evidence when they speak about drugs. If they're talking about drugs, just ask them, where is your evidence? What is the evidence that say that? What's the evidence that, that drug addiction is a brain disease? Ask for the evidence. It's really simple. That's one way to get there. Another way to get there is that respectable people who use drugs, not the ones who are catching hell in the system, not the ones who are addicted. I mean, respectable people like me, you, who use drugs, got to get out of the closet. So we changed this narrative about what a drug user looked like. This is what a drug user, well, if I was white, this is what a drug user would look like. <laughs> Another way we get there is we have to encourage civil disobedience. You all remember Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks, now we think of her as a hero. She broke the law. She refused to get out of her seat. She didn't want to get up out of her seat. She broke the law because she knew it was wrong. The same is true here. Why should the government be allowed to tell me how I can pursue happiness as long as I am not impacting somebody else's ability to do the same? So as Martin Luther King has said, it is our moral obligation responsibility to disobey unjust laws. Like a lot of people say things like, oh, I march with King, or if I was, I would, I, would, I would be there with King. This is the King moment. Where are you? And now I want you to hear our CEO, Mike Bros, closing out the 25th annual Zero Mental Health Symposium. Here's Mike. Dr. Hart. We are so glad you could be with us here in Oklahoma. Uh, the notes say I'm supposed to talk about takeaways from the symposium. Guys, the symposium about is laying out ideas, having conversation, discussion, sometimes arguments, uh, being able to discuss these ideas and then takeaways. And you have given us a lot to think about. Thank you very much. Let's give him a hand. I totally agree with Mike. That was just a phenomenal way to end the Zero Mental Health Symposium. So with that being said, thanks to both Dr. Carl Hart and Dr. Chan Hellman for speaking at the Zero Mental Health Symposium. And if you haven't already, definitely listen to part one of this two-part series on the symposium. You don't want to miss part one, which featured Esme Weijin Wang and Dr. Stephanie Covington. Again, thanks for listening to the Mental Health Download. And as we always say, 
go do good things.